it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vlad Putin is a vampire. No, not like Vlad the Impaler, who gave us Dracula, but the vampire squid. Vlad is going after squid. He's going after lots of different types of food. So in response to the downing of that Malaysian airline jet by what really, really looks like Russian armed Ukrainian rebels, the West imposed sanctions. So Vlad and Russia struck back and they banned Western food, European food, American food. And so now what they're doing is sending inspectors around Russia. They've been doing that for a long time, but they've added a visual component because Vlad knows that imagery matters. I mean, he created a climate in Moscow where the sporting club, the famous sporting club Spartak, quote unquote, decided to remove a bio of Garry Kasparov from its pages because the great chess master is a Putin critic. So that's one way that Vlad struck back. The other way is to send these food inspectors out and these videos are going viral. We have steadfast Russian food inspectors taking out their aggressions on otherwise unsuspecting wheels of cheese. The Wall Street Journal called these guys the calamari cops as they crush squid in a metal incinerator. And in Russia, if goose is cooked, then cook is goosed, or worse than goosed. The geese were then taken to a nearby landfill site where they were run over by a bulldozer several times and then moved to rubbish. And yes, the visual is a bulldozer going back and forth over three frozen geese. The Russian word for this is pere barshil, which I think means overkill. By the way, the geese were then dismembered, their body parts scattered throughout the lands. The fields upon which they were buried were salted, burned, salted again, coated with a honey glaze. The glaze was discovered to be of European origin, so the entire field was targeted with rocket-propelled grenades and erased from Google Maps. Ah, Vlad. I'm glad you're Vlad. Your pursuit of turning a goose to juice knows no rival. You have a literal, very literal recipe for down. But most of all, you're a buffoonish cartoon villain. Right now in America, there's a debate. Who's America's most dangerous foe? Is it the militant band of Islamic radicals who control broad swaths of the Middle East, who sanction rape as a religiously mandated, who have publicly beheaded an octogenarian antiques expert? ISIS did that in Syria yesterday. So is it them or is it Vlad, the big cheese who's cracking down on big cheese? Well, actually, Vlad is a danger, but he's also ridiculous, which is comforting in these calamari challenge times. On the show today, the first female general in the Army's history talks about the first female rangers in the Army's history. I spiel about bad summertime taglines. But first, Nazi horse. Need I say more? I do? All right. Right now I will. 
A Bavarian boarding school has an unusual sculpture out front, a bronze horse. Actually, that's not so unusual, is it? But who sculpted it and how it was intended to be used is... So five decades ago, the wife of sculptor Joseph Thorak donated the horse to pay her son's tuition. Thorak was on Hitler's Führer list of favored artists. Miriam Lane covers art in Europe for the Wall Street Journal. She's, uh, among other things, on the ex-Nazi art beat. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. So this horse, it was sculpted by an artist with Nazi ties. Is that the offense? Does does it go deeper than that about why people would object to this horse being outside the school? Well, I think there are two things going on here. One is that the region of Bavaria is the region that Hitler lived in after he, be, you know, he was a failed art student and he moved to Bavaria. And that was really the hotbed of the Nazi party. So that's where he first started making his speeches. They profited from having wealthy Nazis there as opposed to other regions that had poor Nazis. And then after the war, they profited immensely from American investments. So there's always been a resentment against Bavaria for profiting from Nazi rule. The specific problem with Thorak isn't that his offense is one of an equine nature. It's more that he worked with Goebbels and worked with Hitler to denounce other artists and that he was also someone who played along with the Nazi regime. So people aren't really saying the horse is offensive as much as the fact that his family profited by going to an elite boarding school by giving away this gift that he had intended to give to Hitler and that, you know, perhaps they should put some kind of plaque there explaining it so that people don't think this is just some kind of regular run-of-the-mill Shetland pony. Right. Uh, so, so he's a truly odious guy and this horse had, I don't know, siblings, but he sculpted others and how were they used? They, he put the other two horses, uh, sculptors tend to do this quite often, is they'll sculpt several versions and then, you know, give a few off and then keep a few of them for themselves. So he put the other two in front of Hitler's chancellor here in Berlin, which was, of course, bombed and is now the location of a shopping mall. And he kept this particular horse. And when he died, his wife wanted his son to go to this elite boarding school, but she couldn't afford it. And so the school said, hey, like, you know, you guys were going to give that horse to Hitler, but things went a bit south. Why don't you just give the horse to us? So the school was also very aware of the, uh, you know, the breeding origins of mm -hmm. this particular horse. The bloodlines, if you will. Why does it take, you know, one of Munich's few Jews estimates, are there about 9,000 Jews, and you quote a member of the Jewish community pointing out that this is offensive. The Bavarian authorities themselves can't see it for themselves? People in Bavaria, even when American hatred was at its heights during the George Bush era, people in Bavaria were always so friendly to Americans because they very much profited from American investment after the war. But this was a particular case where people were very defensive in, you know, the school told me on the phone, hey, this is our statue. We can do whatever we want with it. And, you know, it is considered very offensive to a lot of people in that community. But the thing is, they don't really want it removed because it is part of the history. And they actually agree that it's just a horse. Uh, it's more kind of a matter of just explaining how they profited from it. And the fact that the school is so defensive and not wanting to discuss the matter is what really bothers people. Could you take us through a little bit of the history of um, Germany reckoning with its Nazi past? You've reported a lot on this, but from what I understand, 
understand, you know, right after the war, there were a lot of things going on, shame and also wanting to, you know, appease the rest of the international community. And there was a large scale purge of a lot of uh, outward pieces of art, for instance. But has that abated? Because people didn't figure out the Nazi ties of this horse until recently. So, you know, 40 years ago, if this was discovered to be a thorax horse, do you think it would have been at least amended with a plaque back then? I don't think it would have been. I mean, I think, to be honest, people are much more open nowadays than they used to be. And one of the annoying things about reading comments about my story uh, is that people have this idea that things have gotten worse. Honestly, mm-hmm. they've they've gotten better. You know, you look at the fact that so many buildings were built in Munich during Hitler's rule, and they've actually been put to very good use in ways that would infuriate Hitler. So when I was down in Munich reporting this story, I walked by the art museum that Hitler had created that was supposed to be this grand palais for Aryan art, and it's now run by the director of the Venice Biennale, who is a black guy who's so promoting of minority art that that's all anyone could talk about at the Venice Biennale or about this particular museum that he heads now that was built in a building Hitler asked to have constructed. And, you know, out on the balcony of that particular building is now a very gay-friendly bar. We've got someone in the story cited who works in a you know, research center for Nazi looted art that's now housed in a building that Hitler also commissioned. So Munich's actually been a good place in terms of reckoning with its past. It's just that they've got a very particular past that other parts of Germany don't have to deal with because Hitler was so obsessed and loved Munich so much. So what do you think the future of this horse will be? I mean, what are the precedents we could look at to figure out what might happen with this horse? Unfortunately, I don't think anything is going to happen to the horse. You know, I I talked to people at the school for four days. It's private property, and they don't see a reason to change. And that is really shitty, to be honest. Unfortunately, this is a situation where private rights are actually trumping common sense. I think... One thing that was really interesting also in reporting this story is people were bringing up the kind of idea of Confederate monuments and Mm -hmm. Confederate flags in the United States. So, you know, if a state wants to do something about government-owned Confederate property, that's very different from if somebody wants to fly a flag out their window. So I think that the best that people can do and have done in Germany when it comes to showing Nazi art, whether that's with a swastika or not, is to have their neighbors say to them, hey, what are you doing? You know, what is your intention with this? You know, are you trying to sow hatred or, or would you perhaps like to contextualize what you're doing with some kind of sign or explanation? Right. And I was thinking about the Confederate statues, too. And further complicating it is the fact that, you know, South Carolina, where they took the flag, the explicit flag down has a lar- very large black population Munich has only 9,000 Jews in a, in a city of 1.4 million. So it's not as straight a comparison. It's definitely not. And I think that in reporting this story, I thought very much of the fact that I'm from Southern Virginia and North Carolina. And, 
you know, when I see a statue of Robert E. Lee or my father went to Washington and Lee University, that's where I met my mother and the horse traveler who belonged to Robert E. Lee is revered there. Yeah. And no one is meaning anything, you know, racist by that. But I think that if you want to compare horses to horses, you, you know, Washington and Lee University in, in um, Lexington, Virginia, makes it very clear that this was a horse that belonged to someone who fought in the Confederacy and who afterwards admitted that what he did was not good and he worked for the greater good. So perhaps just as WNL puts a plaque next to Traveler when people honor it with their apples and carrots, including me as a child, maybe this particular school should also have a plaque so that people can show affection for this horse while also remembering his history. Well, a horse is a horse, of course, of course, unless the horse was sculpted by Joseph Thorak. Not so. <laughs> Miriam Lane covers art in Europe for the Wall Street Journal. Great talking to you as always. Thank you, Mike. So the newest addition to the Panoply Network is Sports Illustrated. Maybe you heard of them. This is Sports Audible because they have some great podcasts. Among them, the Monday Morning Quarterback the fantasy football podcast. All right, this might just be a little personal to me. You know what I like in my fantasy football podcasts? Fantasy football. You know what I don't like? Discursive takes on Beverly Hills 90210. That's very personal. Maybe 2% of the audience understands that I'm complaining about the most prominent football podcast out there. Sports Illustrated has a better one. And a good friend of mine, John Wertheim, is involved with a couple of these podcasts. He does a tennis one. He does This Is Your Brain on Sports, where he talks to a Tufts professor and dissects the larger issues of sports and society. But he's also, he was the first interview on something called the SI Vault, and that's where Ted Keith interviews a Sports Illustrated writer, and they read a classic piece. And John Wertheim talks about the story of two tennis players who met on the Titanic. So you could go into the archives when they were pre-Panoply, but now Sports Illustrated is part of the Panoply Network, and I do urge you to check them out. The 96 soldiers who graduated from Army Ranger Training School are the best of the best, the toughest, the hardiest, the most resilient, and they have to be rangers, as they say, lead the way. Two of the 96 soldiers are women. That is a first. It's also the first time women were allowed to try. Overall, many more fell than succeed in earning their ranger tab. Well, joining me now is Anne Dunwoody. She is a retired general. In fact, she is America's first retired four-star general who happens to be a female. The name of her book is A Higher Stand leadership strategies from America's first female four-star general. Hello, General Dunwoody. Oh, Mike, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. And are the SEALs next? Where do, where do the questions stand with all the branches right now? Uh, all of them are in the, the, the assessment is due and finalized on the 1st of January of 16. What I'm very proud about the Army, I can speak for it, because uh, I'm most familiar with it, is that they've taken a very methodical approach to this assessment and identifying the standards and allowing women to attend ranger school for the first time to see if they're physically qualified to do that was part of this overall assessment. And I think those two young females made a lot of believers out of disbelievers yeah. <laughs> by being able to physically accomplish this incredible course. Was there ever a time when you didn't think that? Have you always thought that women could be rangers? No. You know, I, I, when I got promoted to four-star, I heard people say, God, did you ever dream you were going to be a four-star general? I go, 
I never dreamed I was going to be a one-star general. There's, <laughs> I never dreamed I was going to make a living jumping out of airplanes. You didn't think about these things with your little. But now in my office, I have pictures from two seventh graders wearing a little combat uniform with four stars down the front of the uniform with Dunwoody and U.S. Army and saluting because they can dream about those things. I do believe today we can dream. People can be things that you and I can't even fathom, i.e., now, Ranger. <laughs> Do you think the story, the lessons of homosexuals, gays in the military, will largely parallel what we've seen or the perception of what was going to be problems, let's say, with women in the military, that there were all these supposed problems when the fears met reality, women surpassed everyone's expectations. It wasn't exactly perfect, but it's been a very good thing, and we could all look back and be proud of that. Do you think that's how gays in the military in America is going to go? Yes, I, I really do. And I'll say that because the military, we're not a social experiment, and we know we have to be combat ready. And every time one of the newer ideas, and I can go back to you know integration of blacks in the military, look at how hard and difficult that journey was. And we have arrived. And then it was the integration of women into the regular army, separate from the separate Women's Army Corps. And it was a long journey. Nothing happens overnight. There's always resistance. There's always those things you just mentioned, speculations or prejudices or biases out there from people that want to prevent the movement from going. But people demonstrate, and they make believers out of non-believers, and the journeys continue, and voila. When we lifted the ban on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they did it smartly. First, it gave the leadership time to educate. How are we going to go about this? By the time they lifted the ban on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was a non-event for this military. We knew they are serving. We knew they were doing great work. And it was a matter of now we're going to get on with this, you know, eliminating this stigma, this prejudice, this coding, if you will, and leverage the talent that resides within our military. I'm sure if you look at the course of your life, you see that attitudes have changed, not just within the military, but societal attitudes towards women. Things aren't perfect, but we have made great strides in terms of girls in sports, in terms of sexism. Where are, you could talk about your area of expertise, the Army. Where are the next big battles to fight? Mm. Um, I'm just so proud to see this journey continue. And when I got promoted as a first female four-star, I said I might be the first, but I won't be the last. Navy has one now, Navy Admiral, the Air Force has three. So I think the next challenge, and you mentioned it earlier, is with this, the opening of all specialties to combat arms to women will be this journey of not just the first ranger, but now the first ranger company commander, ranger battalion commander, that kind of, once they open those branches, you're going to see how their whole line of firsts, if that decision is made and that journey is approved. Yeah. I know you do a lot of uh, corporate speeches and you talk to a whole bunch of different groups, most of them civilian. And just because you're, let's face it, you're so impressive, you're a trailblazer, you're heroic, you could say something pretty cliched and people will nod and say, oh yeah, that's great coming out of your mouth. But is there a thing, is there a piece of advice or is there a point that you emphasize that you find really resonates with people, maybe in a way that you didn't even expect it to? Yeah, well, I would tell people, and there is a lot, this is a hard time for the military, and it's a hard time for our country. But what I tell young folks, and anyone, that if you serve in the military, that 
even for two years or five years or ten years, you're going to be returned a better citizen because of the work ethic, the values, the leadership responsibilities you'll be given when you return. And I hear this story from people on the Hill, from people in industry. They served two years in the Marines. I talked to a CEO of the bank. He said his four years in the Marine Corps was more value than his degree at Princeton. But I hear it over and over again. And I'm also part of the Aspen Institute and the Franklin Project, which promotes and is trying to institutionalize the national service. You know, the military is not for everybody, and I get that. And it takes a special person that wants to serve. But there's so many areas, whether it's the Peace Corps or helping the homeless, so many services that young people can serve to give back to this great country and make a difference. General Ann Dunwoody is the first woman to, here's the list, or some of the list, command the Combined <clears throat> Arms Support Command, to command a battalion in the 82nd Airborne Division. She was Fort Bragg's first female general officer. She was the first woman in the U.S. military to achieve the rank of four-star general. Her book, A Higher Standard, Leadership Strategies from America's First Female Four-Star General. Thank you, General Dunwoody. I salute you. Thank you, Mike. How kind, and thank you very much for a wonderful interview. And now the spiel, tag, not it. Opening this weekend, the film The Man from UNCLE tanked. $13 million did not even beat Mission Impossible in its third week of release. I have an idea why. The Man from UNCLE, the TV show, aired from 1964 to 1968. So if you were 10 years old, I'll even, I'll even acknowledge maybe an 8-year-old was, was allowed to stay up to watch this show on NBC. If you are 8 years old, if you have any memory of The Man from UNCLE being a TV show or something that at all resonates, you'd be 55 today. Two-thirds of the U.S. population have no relationship to The Man from UNCLE as a cultural product. And the one-third that does barely ever goes to the movies. But you know, I also think the description of The Man from UNCLE kind of stank. Set against the backdrop of the early 1960s at the height of the Cold War. Thanks for the context. The Man from UNCLE centers on CIA agent Solo and KGB agent Kiryakin. Forced to put aside long-standing hostilities, the two team up on a joint mission to stop a mysterious international criminal organization which is bent on destabilizing the fragile balance of power through the proliferation of nuclear weapons and technology. We recently discovered the existence of an international criminal organization with ties to former Nazis. Rumor has it that built an atom bomb. Let me ask you a question. Is the Iran debate getting big ratings? No, it's not. Then I don't think anyone's going to go see Man from Uncle. Sounds like the same plot line. But then I read another description of a new film that's out. It's called Learning to Drive. Who is it? Darwan Singh Tour for your driving lesson, please. As her marriage dissolves, a Manhattan writer takes driving lessons from a Sikh instructor with marriage troubles of his own. In each other's company, they find the courage to get back on the road and the strength to take the wheel. Teach yourself to see everything. The driver's biggest problem is everyone else. You can't always trust people to behave properly. Ain't that the truth? Oh, God. And they, they didn't even have the courage to name this thing Seek and You Shall Find. Now, this thing stars Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley, if I were English, or British, as the Seek. And I, I was thinking to myself, is he even Indian? I mean, I know he played Gandhi, 
But that was a time when people didn't really care that someone of that ethnicity plays the guy. And if you played Gandhi and win an Oscar for Gandhi, then you get kind of kissed in as Indian. But no, he's actually half Indian. And I found this out on the website Showbiz411. Okay, quick aside about the name of this website, Showbiz411. The technology 411 is being killed by the internet. So you're naming a website after a technology, dialing 411, that websites have killed, right? Which I guess is a little like naming a newspaper the Daily Telegraph. That said, here's what Showbiz 411 says about Sir Ben. Indeed, Sir Ben is half Indian. His father was an Indian doctor. This came in handy when producers of this gem of a movie couldn't get financing with a full Indian actor, the great Irfan Khan. He's only the star of Jurassic World, the year's biggest movie. I did not know you need to go half Indian to get full funding, but I would not call Mr. Khan the star of Jurassic World. I would say the stars of Jurassic World are in order a CGI Megalodon, CGI Pterodactyls, a CGI Tyrannosaurus Rex, Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard's heels, and then maybe your fun con. But yes, Ben Kingsley, here is a description of Ben Kingsley's background in Wikipedia. Kingsley's father was born in Kenya. He was a Gujarati Indian. His paternal grandfather was an extremely successful spice trader who had moved from India to Zanzibar, where Kingsley's father lived, until moving to Britain at the age of 14. Kingsley's mother was British. She was born out of wedlock and was loathed to speak of her background. That, by the way, is a much better description of anything than Seek and You Shall Find, the new Ben Kingsley movie. All these descriptions of summer movies are terrible. Maybe because the movies are terrible, but I just think the descriptions are terrible. Opening soon, no escape. We're going to get through this, okay? In their new overseas home, an American family soon finds themselves caught in the middle of a coup where they frantically look for a safe escape in an environment where foreigners are being immediately executed. Ten years ago, I could not have pictured myself dragging my family to the other side of the world to start over. What if we don't like it here? I think we will. What struck me of that was their new overseas home. Like, you knew that if they named any one part of the world, it would just turn everyone off. I did a little research. It's some unnamed Southeast Asian country. But the entire country of Cambodia is boycotting this movie because in the trailer there was some Khmer text that they objected to. Here's a new one. We are your friends. That guy right there? See that handsome man right there? He's DJ. I'm DJ. Just a side room, though. Can you play drunk in love? Absolutely not. Caught between a forbidden romance and the expectations of his friends, aspiring DJ Cole Carter attempts to find the path in life that leads to fame and fortune. Or is a guy doing stuff? By the way, what are the stakes? Let's say Cole Carter can't become a DJ. Good. The world needs fewer DJs. Here's one. War Room. This is my favorite place in this house. I call it my war room. You wrote prayers for each area of your life. Prayer strategy. I sure could use some of that. War Room, which had an exciting title, can go in a lot of directions. Unfortunately, it took this one. A seemingly perfect family. Gonna pause here. I'm gonna guess they're actually not perfect. Look to fix their problems with the help of Miss Clara, an older, wiser woman. The second mother. Como é que uma pessoa tira o gelo e bota a forminha vazia dentro do freezer? 
When the estranged daughter of a hardworking live-in housekeeper suddenly appears, the unspoken class barriers that exist within the home are thrown into disarray. Now, some of these movies may be good. The fact that they're being released on August 26th suggests otherwise. But I just think that if you write any movie with these kind of horrible descriptions, it'll make it sound terrible. Like, would you want to see this movie? The survivors of a wealthy industrialist seek to unlock the secrets to his success and unearth the motivating incidents from his youth. Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Well, that's Citizen Kane. That's the greatest movie ever made, and it sounds horrible. And it's not just movies. Would you want to see this giant flaming turd? As a vital political contest looms in sleepy New England, a brash outsider, suspected of insincerity and doubted for his comportment, takes on the stuffy establishment. No, I wouldn't want to watch that either. But you know what that is? That's Donald Trump. That's what's really happening with Trump. We're dying. We're dying. We need money. These descriptions make bad movies seem terrible and make good real life seem even worse. My advice to you, skip the Ben Kingsley in a turban flick and just stick to CNN. Trump's going to say something much more exciting than the movies. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi drops contraband Gouda from an eight-story tower in New Rochelle. Managing producer Joel Meyer is wont to back over misbegotten Granny Smith apples in a bobcat. Executive producer Andy Bowers, upon discovering that your prosciutto is ill-gotten, has been known to order it in front of a firing squad, then have it hanged, then shot out of a cannon, which by the way makes it which by the way makes it taste even more delicious on a melon. The gist, we deny that waterboarding avocados is torture and maintain that the so-called horrific experiments on radicchio were in the name of science. And lunch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>